There's a story that several years ago, there were two students that uh, enrolled in Chicago Kent College of Law. And the one that at graduation, the highest ranking student in the class was a blind man whose name was Overton. Now when Overton went to receive the reward for being the, the valedictorian of his class, he said, this award doesn't only belong to me, Kasmersky. It, it belongs to him as well. You see, one of the first days of law school, the blind person, Overton, was helped down the stairs by a man named Kaspersky who was born without arms. And the two of them formed a relationship and they studied their law books together. Overton would carry them and turn the pages and Kaczmierski would read the books and, and read out loud and study the material with Overton. It was this incredible interdependent relationship that they had. The deficiency of one was compensated by the gift of the other. It's a place where, and you may have heard this term before, where together two people were greater than the sum of their parts. This morning, we're going to look at what it means to be part of uh, something that is greater than the sum of its parts. Before we do that, join me in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would do what your Holy Spirit does so well. Take words that are written on a page of your word and would write them on our hearts that we would be changed by them into your likeness. If there would be anything that would hinder that happening, I pray that you would remove it. For we've come to be taught and to be changed. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. We're in an 11-week study of kind of reversing the question that Jesus asked his disciples. One of the most important questions he ever asked them is, who do you say that I am? And they had a lot of trouble answering that. Uh, he first said, who do the crowd say? And then he said, who do you say to the 12? And finally, Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus said, that's right. And it's kind of the first place in, in, in the New Testament, in that gospel, that, that people, somebody got who Jesus was. And then Jesus merely for the rest of the gospel heads to Jerusalem and to the cross. And I wish they would have stopped him right there and and I, I wish when he said, who do you say I am? And, and, and they answered it. I wish he said, okay, Je Jesus, if that's who you are, the Messiah, the Holy One of God, then tell me, tell us who we are. And we're looking at what I believe would be 11 of the things that Jesus would have uh, stated to answer that question. And the reason that we're looking at this, because knowing who you are is the first step in becoming who you are. Knowing who you are 
is the first step in becoming who you are. And so I know we, week after week, we've kind of gone through this litany. And uh, for those that uh, this may be helpful, those who maybe your mind wanders during the message and halfway through you say, what is this whole thing about? What's he talking about? I, I put the uh, 10 of the 11 things up here. And so when your mind starts to wonder, just look up there and begin to memorize them. Because if you know these 10 of the 11, not only will you know who you are, but you will be able to walk somebody else through who they are. And, and so it starts with, before creation, you are known. Now, that's just not a nice thought. That's actually what scripture says. Before God created the world, he knew you. He had you in mind when he created the world. And when he created you, he created you different than anything else in creation because only humankind is created in his image, in his likeness. Now we take that a little too far. If we're created in his likeness, if we're created in the image of God, maybe we are God. And we start making decisions that only involve us and our importance. And so we become broken and sinful and fallen. And God, knowing that that would happen, had a plan that he would redeem us. He would cash in the life of his son on the cross that by faith, Jesus takes our sin and brokenness and pays because without the shedding of blood, sins can't be forgiven. And we get his righteousness or his rightness. We are redeemed through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And then we are, the Bible says, we're a new creation. The old has gone. We're not just a, a, an update of ourselves or um, a better one of ourselves. We are a whole new creation. And part of that is understanding that we are a child of God. And I love the fact that the New Testament talks about that the, the, we are adopted into God's family because back in the day, if you were born naturally to your family, they could get rid of you legally in many ways, including putting you to death. But if you are adopted into a family, there was no way to undo that adoption. So I love the fact that the Apostle Paul helps us to see that we are eternally children of God. And then we kind of go over to the other side about our purpose. We have a, a purpose. We have been called for a purpose. We have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. We've been gifted with gifts that allow us to do Christ-like things because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we gather as a community. So here's kind of who we are and then who we are and what we are, are uh, invited into. Uh, I had this kind of, I don't think a guy can call it a bracelet, but uh, a leather strap with a, <laughs> with a snap and uh, we, I, I wanted to have a cake party and if you see C-E-E-C-E-G-G -E -E -G, and our next one's going to be S and, and it's to remind me 
that whenever I look down, wherever I go, I am called, empowered, gifted, gathered, and we'll do the S, the sent next week. But this, this is the outline. If you know who you are, it's the first step into living who you are. And so this morning we are looking at this whole idea of the importance of gathering in community, gathering as God's people, gathering as the church. Now, about 18 months ago, this became a big deal, gathering as the church. COVID has just started, and of the, the uh, 50 states, um, they said, basically, going to church, gathering as the community of faith is a non-essential activity. 27 of those states, over half said, if you do this, we will find you, meaning put a fine on you, or we will put you in jail. They made it illegal for the church to gather. And they said, because gathering like we are today is a non-essential essential activity. It stunned the church. The government is saying this activity is non-essential. Now, I'm going to meddle here just for a moment. In this country, COVID did not start that idea. Long before COVID happened 18 months ago, more and more folks in the United States decided that gathering on Sunday in worship is a non-essential activity. Back in the 1950s and 60s, people went to church four out of four Sundays. You only missed if you were on vacation or illness. As time went on, people came, well, three out of the four or five Sundays. And then two out of the four or five Sundays. And right before COVID, the national average of folks gathering in churches was 1.5 Sundays a month. Now, for some these days, gathering here is a dangerous thing because of their age or uh, health concern and um, it is a huge concern and I, I get that and we wear masks and, and we do everything we can to make this a safe place. But for many others, COVID has made it convenient not to have to come. It becomes a convenient excuse. Now here, here's what I'm wondering. What has happened to our understanding of gathering as God's people 
in the last 30, 40, 50 years that has brought us to this point. But the, and the bigger question is, what is it that other Christians around the world know that we in America have forgotten? What I mean by that is, there are places in the world today that if you gather in worship with other Christians, you could be killed. You could be imprisoned. You could lose your business. You could lose your family. You could be beheaded. Yet, they continue to meet in spite of those kinds of threats. So here's the question I have to ask myself as I would ask the church in America. What is it that they know or experience that we have forgotten? Well, to understand this idea of gathering as God's people in Christian community and worship. We, we, we need to go to the Old Testament. Where's the first time that this kind of gathering is talked about? And it's in the book of Exodus. And Moses has gone up to the mountain and he has encountered God face to face or back to face or however there was an encounter. And it was so intense that Moses' face glowed because he came into the presence of God into his holiness, and it kind of rubbed off on Moses. And he comes down with the, the tablets, the law code of how God is calling his people to live. And it says in Exodus 35, 1, Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Now, I want you to look at that word assembled because it's from that word that the Greek translators of the Old Testament used a word, a Greek word called ekklesia. Ekklesia comes from two words, a, a, a preposition, ek, which means out of, and kaleo, which is a verb meaning to call. When you have an assembly, the assembly are people who are called out. They're separated, they're distinct and different from everyone else around them. And so these people at the base of the mountain were called out of Egypt. They were called out of the world and into a relationship with Yahweh, the holy God of creation. And so this is the first time that you have this idea of assembly of folks that are distinct and unique. And what happens at that assembly? They get to encounter God because he is on the mountain and so holy they came and touched the mountain. But they encounter God really through also through the glowing of Moses who's been in his presence. And they encounter his word. And that's the first sense of this gathering of God's people. 
The next time we see this, and the first time that this word ecclesia that's translated uh, church is from the mouth of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus uses the term for the first time in the Bible in Matthew, and it says, and I tell you, well, let, let me give you the, uh, the situation. This is Matthew's encounter of, or, or a rendition of the question Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. Jesus says, that's right. Pats Peter on the shoulder. And, and, and then the conversation goes to this. And I tell you, you are Peter. And upon this rock, this statement of faith, this understanding of who I am, I will build my church. I will build my called out ones. I will build my assembly of folks on this realization of who I am. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I just a sidebar here, this is a freebie, this doesn't cost anything extra, but it's juicy. The fact that I always thought, as most of the church always thought, that the church was here and the gates of hell would not prevail against it, would not overcome the church, right? I mean, isn't that that we're, we're stronger than the gates of hell? But that's not what it says. The gates of hell shall not prevail. And we learn a lot about gates and walls in these last couple of years. Gates and walls are not offensive weapons, they're defensive weapons. You don't put a gate up for offense, you put a gate up for defense. So the statement that I will build my church and the gates that protect hell will not prevail against it. That the church gathered will and can overcome any evil that comes before it. The church gathered has more powerful that is more powerful than anything else. In fact, the church will overcome hell. That is an amazing reversal of how most folks have seen that verse. The church is that powerful, the cold out ones, plural, the church. And it was to these cold out ones that on Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit came in the form of tongues of fire and the wind, the ruach, the breath of God, and empowered the church to be the church. Empowered the church to be a new community. When they were gathered together, it didn't happen to individuals out. It happened when the church was gathered together. And what happened after that gathering? Peter proclaimed the gospel. And people cared about each other in, in such a godly way that others wanted to be part of it. This experience transformed a very uh, fearful people into a powerful group for the kingdom of God. And look what happens in Acts chapter 2. 
What do these called out ones do? And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any who had a need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes together, they received the food with glad and generous hearts, praising God together and having favor with all the people together. I'm adding the togethers, by the way, so that you know it's plural and that I'm not seeing things. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved, whose lives were radically changed. And the Apostle Peter, when he writes to the churches, he writes this, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and Precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is the only way stones can be a house? A stone by itself is just a stone. It is just a rock. But when you put them together, you build a house. Becomes a, a force. It's, it's a great picture that many in the American church, you know, believe the Chevrolet commercial, like a rock. We're independent. But a rock by themselves is just a stone. And Peter says, you are being built into something. You are a living stone. You are alive. You are empowered. You are gifted. And when you put alive and empowered and gifted people together, you build something big. And that's the church. And, and maybe another way to understand it is... is uh, to have you think about the Supreme Court in, uh, in Washington. Now, if you visited Washington or live in Washington, you could go to a, a Capitals game or uh, what used to be the Redskins game, um, and you could sit next to a Supreme Court justice. You could go out to a restaurant and that one of the justices could be at the next table. You would recognize them, but it's not until they get together and sit together on the bench, it's not till then that they have their power. And when an attorney comes before them, he does not address the justices how does an attorney address? They address the court because the sum of its parts is bigger than the parts themselves. When they get together, it is bigger 
than the sum of their individual parts. The same is true of the church. You, 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 you are not the church. Now, when you saw that in the bulletin, if you got to that far about, okay, what's Jerry going to preach on today? You're not the church? Oh, yes, I am the church. Why am I not the church? I go to church. You, singular, are not the church. And you, singular, will never be the church. This rock by itself will only be a rock. It's not until it's put with others that it would become a wall or a structure. But collectively, we are the church. And the gates of hell has no power over us. And the, 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 Paul would call us, we're like the body of Christ. And the body is more than the sum of its parts. In Romans 12, Paul writes, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Not all parts have the same function. We're not all cookie cutter of each other, but we are uniquely called, empowered, gifted, and gathered for a reason. Because when we're together, we're more than the sum of our parts. We are empowered. We are empowered. If you were to cut off a finger, it could not survive. If you cut off an arm or a leg or an ear, it could not survive. It survives because it's part of the body. And that's who we are. And as I look out at this body of Christ, together, we pray together. We pray for each other. There's an interconnectedness. We sing hymns together. Our voices blend together. We listen to the word of God together. We sharpen each other as the Holy Spirit takes that word in our lives. We struggle together. There are people here who were prayed for, people prayed for this morning who are struggling with cancer. And we hurt with them. There are others with other diseases and depressions and addictions. There are struggles with our children. There's anxiety. We have little in common outside these walls, but when we come together, there's an interdependency, a connectedness, because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. You may think it's strange. A couple of years ago when we talked about being the church, I, I just used to sign every uh, one of the letters to the congregation, your pastor and, and fellow minister. 
But I'm more than that. I am your brother. And you are my brothers and sisters. And that even supersedes me being a pastor or a fellow minister. So at the beginning of all of my, uh, when I sign, it's proud to be your brother. And then your pastor. And then fellow minister. Because we are family. You know, one of the, the, the most fun things of COVID, if there is such a thing, is when folks started coming back and watching what happened in the gathering space and in this room when you walked in the door because you were missed. You know, those, some of those videos of moms and dads and brothers and sisters coming home from serving in, in foreign countries in the military, and they, you know, they surprised their families and, and it all just touches our hearts. That happened in this narthex, in the gathering space, as you all came back because you were missed, because you were missed. Maybe in the mysterious providence of God, part of the purpose of COVID that, that we would learn, relearn what we have forgotten, how important it is to be gathered as his people, as his children. I came across this definition, a church is a blood-bought people devoted to the worship of the one true God. They're set apart from the world. They're committed to serve one another and love their neighbors. And we do this. We encourage each others through assembling together. You know, I've used the illustration before, so I'm sorry if you've heard it. I think this time on together on the Lord's Day is like halftime. And, and for those of you who are football fans, you know, uh, usually Ohio State doesn't do good in the first half. But... They, they, they go to kind of the level of their opponent and, and, and you wonder, you know, what happened? And then they go in for halftime. And in halftime, the coaches sit down with them and say, hey, did you notice that this happening? And try this. And they, they get orange juice and they, they you know, they, some, they get fluids and, and, and they get vitamins, they get oxygen. They're made well with a new understanding of what it means to be out there on the field. That's what Sundays ought to be. We come before our holy God to be rejuvenated, to get a game plan, to be encouraged, to be filled up because the game is the other six days of the week out there until we come together again next Sunday for another halftime. Here's what Peter says. You are a chosen race. You. You, plural, are a chosen race. You, plural, are a whole, a royal priesthood. You, plural, we, plural, are a holy nation. We are a people, plural, for his own possession, that we, plural, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, plural, out of the darkness into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not plural of people, but now you are God's plural people. Once you had not plural received mercy, but now you plural have received mercy. We have missed it. We have let our busyness and our schedules get in the way of our rejuvenation, of our community, of our being built together. And I will close with this. I love the story of the person in a mountain community that wanted to build a church for that community out of his own resources, built the church. It was beautiful. And the first day welcomed everyone into the church and everyone in the community had a pew with their name on it. And people came in and it was unbelievable, but there was one problem. There were no lights in the building. It was dark. Did he forget that? He said, no, buy your seat is a torch. And when you come, you light that torch and you put it by your seat. Because here's what he wanted them to know. When you are not there, that part of the church will be dark. When you are not part of this community, that part of our church will be dark. You think about that. Amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, we have forgotten the importance. And right now we pray for those who are risking their lives physically, risking their businesses, their children, their families, because assembling is, not assembling is not an option. And they will pay whatever price because being together is more important than anything else. I pray for the American church. I pray for our church. May we know and remember and discover what they know. And if there's anyone here who does not know you to be their Lord and Savior and they're still in the dark, about who you are and who they are. May they bend their knee today, commit their lives to you. May they light up the world and may they light up our world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.